Hello and welcome to The Mock Review with Ben and Drew. I'm Ben Garman. And I'm Drew Evans. Today on the podcast, we're talking to Adam Detsky. Now, Adam is a member of the American Mock Trial Association Board of Directors. He's also a member of the AMTA Tournament Administration Committee. And the main reason that we're chatting with him today is he's the chair of the Team and Feeder Subcommittee, which is the uh, subcommittee in Adam specifically that is tasked with making the team assignments for regionals and other, you know, feeder assignments to national competitions. And Adam has been doing that uh, specific process for several years. We're really lucky to get to talk to him. We're actually recording this the day before Thanksgiving, which is the day that the first uh that the first uh, draft of the regionals pairings were released to the general public. Uh, so Adam, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So as we like to do, right, you're someone who's been involved in AMTA for, for a little while, and we like to go back and get people's origin stories. So can you tell uh, the listeners of our podcast how you started out in AMTA, how you got going? Sure. So I was a student at the University of Maryland, back in 1997 or 98 and to be perfectly honest with you I was I was going nowhere I I didn't have any plans for my future I didn't know what I wanted to do I was still an undeclared major by and large I didn't know if I wanted to go to law school or not I didn't know I certainly knew that I wasn't mature enough to enter the real world yet and uh you know I I was uh I was definitely that guy who was sitting there in my dorm room with the fan blowing out the window and uh, and and a pack of uh, ye old english bottles in my in my fridge and i i really had no direction and i came across uh, uh just a random family law studies class uh taught by a man named Noel Myricks and for those of you who've explored the website you might know that Dr. Myricks is one of the members of the coaches hall of fame and that was a law school level class. You know, the textbook was a law school family law textbook. And uh, he taught Socratic method, which is what they use in most law school classes. And we had to read these cases and we had to brief them and we had to discuss what's important and, and point out how they re got to their rationale. And I really enjoyed it. And uh, what I, uh, I excelled in the class. It was the first time I really felt like I was connecting with some education. And one day he pulled me aside and he said, you know, you're really personable. We're looking for people to join our mock trial team. Uh, would you be interested in showing up to a practice? And I showed up one day and uh, I actually showed up with a guy who's still my best friend to this day. Uh, and we actually had gotten a puppy that day, Bella, a little, a little beagle. And uh, and uh, we sat there and back to class, back classroom, watched a couple of trials, literally two trials. And uh, and and then they said, so how about it? Are you guys interested in joining? And my, my friend said no. And I said, sure, I'll do it. And, uh, you know, that year the team went on to uh, win the national championship. Uh, I was not part of that team. I do not claim to be a member of the 1998 national champions. In fact, I was only really active on the team in 1999, which is the year between the Maryland national championships in 1998 and 2000. Uh, and uh, so, but you know, it was a disappointing year for us in 1999, but it, it changed my life and uh, it changed so many people's lives. I know so many people out there who, uh, who, who, to this day, send me emails saying, you know, thank you so much for being on the board. Mock trial changed my life and it changed my life. And so what happened is I graduated from the University of Maryland and I went off to Syracuse Law School 
and Syracuse at the time didn't have a team, so I formed one. Um, and I co-formed it with a, with another man who became the head coach, and I was the assistant coach. Uh, and we actually did very well as that new upstart program. And by the end of our second year, we we won the national tournament in Minneapolis, which at the time was called the Silver Flight. Uh, it was a different tournament structure then. And at the Silver Flight, the top four teams got what we called bonus bids to the national championship. Uh, and, and there was two different silver flights. So we won uh, we won one and made it to the national championship where we finished in second place. And I believe if my recollection shows is correct, we lost the tiebreaker, the mathematical tiebreaker to Bellarmine, who I believe ended up losing to Rhodes. I don't remember anymore. I think that was 2001. And then after I graduated law school, I formed the program at Iona College where I was the head coach for 10 years. Uh, before uh, before leaving, and now I moved lived, lived to uh, now I moved to Colorado, where I have a wife and son, and uh, and I'm not involved in coaching in any way, shape, or form anymore. Uh, so obviously, as you just said, you've been involved in mock trial in many various capacities over the years, but you've really stuck with it. I mean, you've been involved with this activity for two decades now. I, I'm really curious, as someone that's obviously a little bit newer to the game. Uh, how has it changed over the years? I mean, obviously you talk about the silver flights, but, you know, especially with our current growth that we have right now, I would love just, you know, someone's perspective on how AMTA has changed over the years. You know, it's it's funny. When I started, I think, I want to say there was about eight regional tournaments. <laughs> wow. And, and, I, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart. There was no such thing as power distribution. It was simply, this is the regional in your area of the country. Uh, I actually, back in my day, uh, when I was a competitor, Maryland and Howard, it was it was a question of which one was going to get the bids at the tournaments. Um, and it was a different tournament structure then. Like, I remember very vividly my regional in Maryland, uh, we had, we got, our tournament came with four bids to golds, which was the national championship, and like six bids to silvers, which was the silver flight tournaments that I talked about before, which is probably now closer to the equivalent of our orcs. And uh, and certain power teams uh, actually brought with them extra, extra bids. So like you guys now know it as the PPP or the PowerPoint or whatever it's called. You might hear me refer to it as the BBR or the bonus bid rankings. That's what it used to be called because the top teams on the ranking would bring with them an extra bid to whatever regional tournament they went to because that's how they distributed the bids. And so what would happen is the top four teams at a regional which I've, if I actually recall were paired high-low all four rounds back in that time, uh, top to bottom. So like the best teams would only face the bad teams. Uh, but So those four teams would get direct bids to the national championships, and then the other top teams would go off to the silver flights, one of two silver flights, and they would have their four rounds, and the top four teams at both silver flights would round out the last eight teams to make it to what I believe was a 64-team national championship. Uh, that that that's back in the day, you know. You know, in fact, be, most people don't know it, but power uh, power distribution was something that actually kind of only originated in 2009. Um, it, before that, we didn't designate. There was no such thing as A team, B team, C team, or D team. They'd come out with regionals and it'd say, University of Maryland is going to send four teams here. University of Virginia is going to send three teams here. Howard's going to send their two teams there. 
and uh, and there was no logic to it. I remember very vividly my regional had Maryland, Virginia, Howard, George Washington, Georgetown, and uh, and you know, and those were those those were the top, you know. And then there, then you had the other schools down below, and they were just kind of there to get the free pizza that was given out at the end of the tournament. You know, it, it's a very different world that we have evolved, you know, and it, it certainly wasn't 650 teams. It was actually a, back in the day, there was only a national championship. And then regionals kind of came out of that because we had to. In fact, at one point, we had a, what we called a, a I, I actually call it a bronze tournament or a runner-up tournament down in Stetson, which was for teams that had never qualified for nationals. And they would go that would be their national tournament. If you if you did okay at your regional and you never been to a national, you'd get a bid to Stetson. <laughs> uh, so so over the years we've tried different things. I've really seen it develop and uh, and it, it you know what we've seen what we have now is really an evolution that came over a long period of time. So we've been told we 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 uh, obviously want to get into the regionals pairings process in a minute. But of course, we, you know, we had Mike Elfin on uh, a couple episodes ago and you and he, you know, I know both coached at Iona. And so we've been told that we have to ask how you guys became friends. And then we've also been told we have to ask about what he referred to as the great Syracuse judges debacle of 2010. Uh, so before we get into the craziness of this year, we want to know about both of those things. Well, let the record reflect that the great Syracuse judging debacle of 2010, uh, has happened since <laughs> so, so it's happened before I'll, I'll, I'll never ever forget it because I, I with the time i was I'm, i don't remember if i was chair of the committee that did regional assignments at the time or just one of the the senior members who did all i, I certainly did the regional assignments at that time and i was the main guy doing the regional assignments i just i don't recall if i was actually the chair of that group or not but it was approximately one week before the regional tournament and uh, and we get an email from the AMTA reps who who uh, who had been hounding hounding the the hosts at Syracuse, which was my which is a program that I formed. You know, these weren't even this. It wasn't the same people anymore, but it was a program that I helped form. And they they were chasing after him for weeks, like we do with every host, going, "How are you doing with judge recruitment? How are you doing with judge recruitment?" And uh, we get like the the like a week before they send us an email that says, "We have recruited six judges per round." And at the time we had about 28 teams assigned there, you know, like, so, uh, and, and, and by the way, that number did not change come regional time. We had six or seven judges per round. Every room, every single room was judged by one judge. Uh, and, uh, and we just doubled their ballot. Uh, and in five of those or six of those rooms, well, I should say that when we found out the news, we immediately tried to transfer out as many teams as we could. But, you know, there's only so <laughs> many spaces that you could do. A lot of teams had booked their travel. A lot of them use like Hotels.com, so they're never getting their money back no matter what happened. You know, some were like, oh, we'll bring coaches. I'm like, no, you don't understand how bad the issue is here. So, so uh, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm a Syracuse alum. I'm calling up whatever friends I had. You know, and unfortunately, what happened was there was actually their Syracuse trial law program is huge at their law school. And they had just had a huge tournament a week before a national tournament that they hosted. And then like the week before that, they had their own moot court competition. So all their judges were just tapped out. They had and all my friends were tapped out and there was no one helping them. And so literally five of the trials in each round were judged by a single coach judging panel. 
<laughs> so it was it was it was not pretty and in fact that was the one and only year that we did this where we had what we call it a a supplemental regional where uh where what we did was mike gelfan and i drove up to colgate who agreed to help us and by the way in one week Colgate recruited more judges to do this supplemental tournament than Syracuse had in its entirety for the entire four rounds of their tournament. And we, we invited everybody who, who was, uh, who was, you know, for lack of a better word, screwed uh, to come to the tournament. I think only six teams actually took us up on the offer and we had a supplemental tournament where we gave, I believe one or two extra bids to nationals. uh, And we did two bonus rounds, if you would, that year for those teams where they actually had, they ended up getting three judge panels. So, uh, you know, we, we, we felt so horrible, you know, those, we tried so hard. It's just the host wasn't communicating with us. And, you know, that's, that it was actually the impetus for a lot of changes in the mock trial world, because now we have a committee that's sole job is to communicate with these people. And if they're, and we're on the ball with them, and if they're not communicating with us, you know, there's there's problems and we get involved now if we find out a site doesn't have enough judges you know we get on the horn from afar you know we start contacting bar associations we start contacting local lawyers there we do whatever we can to help them you know we can't we're not always successful but we have a kind of support system in place and we're working on improving that support system so that that's end one of the of the question the other the other end is how I met Mike Gelfand, who's one of my best friends, and and uh, he he's the godfather of my son, and uh, he he God bless him, he's one of my favorite people in the whole wide world, and he he's he's just so great, and he's really by the way a mock trial hero this year, because not only did he author the case uh, or lead the chair of the committee that wrote the case, but he's also now hosting a regional tournament while coaching a team while one of the most active board members. He, he's just been amazing. He's, you know, there was someone, a mock trial confession started saying, who is AMPTA royalty? And they're talking about individual students who are current competitors. That's not what I define royalty. I define royalty as the people who take this organization and put it on their back. And that changes over time. But Mike is one of those people. And I'm forever grateful and loyal to him. So I was a, uh, a coach at Syracuse. And uh, it was round four of a regional tournament where it was going to be a winner-take-all type thing versus University of Buffalo, where Mike was the founder of that team. And so I was the founder of Syracuse. He was the founder of that team. It was one of those things where if we won, we were going to the nationals. If they won, they were going to nationals. And if we split, neither one of us was going to nationals. And uh, And Syracuse took both ballots. And so we flew off to Minneapolis and standing around in the opening ceremonies and uh and we're just sitting there talking waiting for people to waiting for the ceremony to start and i turn around and standing right behind me was mike gelfand and i looked to him like like hey you guys qualify for nationals like no we didn't i'm like so what are you you doing here he's like well me and my friend we bought plane tickets and we came out here in hopes that they needed to form a buy team And uh, and from that moment on, we we continued to have correspondence with each other. He, I'd ask when I I I thought I had such an immediate high uh, value on him that I when I when there was something I didn't understand or get, I would I would write him an email at Buffalo and ask him his opinion. He went to NYU. We stayed in touch. Uh, he was a, and by the way, at that time NYU was not 
the world power that it is now and it has been for a while it was an upstart program it was a struggling upstart program and he really helped lift that program off the ground uh and and he he became one of my best friends and then one day uh my assistant coaches at iona left and i said hey do you want to come on board and that man I, even though uh, even though he doesn't drive, he doesn't have a car. He would take a train from Queens, a subway from Queens to uh, to Grand Central Station, and then he'd take a train from Grand Central Station out to New Rochelle, New York. It was probably a two and a half hour commute, and he would be there every Saturday morning, and he'd work his butt off for four hours, and then take the same trip back. And you know that is dedication. You know we are we are two guys who just love this organization more than more than people can possibly realize. You know it. it we both credit it with changing our lives, and and uh, and I hope that we help make a difference in in everyone else's lives, including the people who are listening to this podcast. And uh, the fact that you and and Mike are as involved as you are is reflected in your involvement today, and the fact that we wanted you guys on the podcast. So thank you guys so much for all that you do. Um, to moving on to what I think most people are kind of excited about right now is it just came out on um, the regional assignments. So to start kind of broad, can you just walk us through what your process as the head of this committee is? How do you approach taking 700 teams and putting them into how many regionals is it this year? 28? Is that, I don't it, this year was 20, 28 regionals, and it literally was 700 teams. Uh, 699 teams were registered by today, wow. uh, by the time we released the assignments. And a new record, you know, last year was the new record. Uh, we, we had 681 teams assigned last year on the day that we re- released the assignments, which was actually tomorrow, the uh, 11-22 last year. Uh, it, it's, it is a process, and it, it is a great huge giant puzzle and one you know one of the one of the great presidents of ampta history one of the great members of the ampta board that everyone knows justin bernstein once wrote my committee and he said you know i'm the president of the uh, case committee and the thing about the case committee is if you don't like a fact we change the fact if if you don't like the geography you're stuck with it there's nothing you can do that's that's what you that's the puzzle you're dealt you you don't have changeable facts. The only thing that changes is where your regional sites are year to year. And, you know, there's lots and lots and lots of ways to do it wrong and only a few ways to do it right. And uh, uh, and what I'm very fond of saying is if, if we do our job right, everybody thinks that they were screwed. Uh, every single team thinks that they got the toughest regional and they got the toughest orcs or one of the toughest orcs and that there is and that, that they are being punished somehow when if someone comes to me and says yeah our region is really easy my first thought is uh oh what did i do wrong <laughs> uh, so it, it, you know it is a process and and it's it's something that we take very seriously because because we know you know this is what you guys remember is the competitions is is you know you remember the camaraderie your friends the people you met but ultimately you remember the experience of learning this case learning how to direct learning how to cross do the opening and closing those judges who don't know what the hell they're talking about and how you got screwed at your regional and you really should have made it out these are the memories that stick with you and, and they're really important to us and we understand that so uh Again, I don't know if I directly answered the question, but <laughs> but uh, uh, I hope that uh, 
you know, shed some light on, on how this whole process begins is we sit there and we say, how do we make it so every single team feels like they have a chance? And so, you know, I, I can't emphasize this enough. We have 699 teams. Last year, we had 192 bids to nationals. So that meant there were over 400 teams, close to 500 teams that were not making it to nationals. And so everyone, when they think of power distribution, they always think of the top teams. They think of, they think of the Yales and the Harvards and the, and the, and the up and coming teams and the UCLA's, but they don't think of those 500 teams that haven't been to nationals. You know, last year we had like 290 teams that had like a ranking. So that meant that there were 400 teams that didn't have a ranking, you know, and, and when you look at it on a piece of paper, that, that ranking counts three years of nationals. So that means there's 400 teams that have either not been to nationals in the past three years or longer, or haven't been to nationals at all. And, and how do you keep them feeling like they have a chance? And that's really the focus that I tend to set out and start with is, is what can I do to give those teams a feeling that when they get their regional assignment, when they walk in that door and they get to see all those kids in suits ready to compete, working their butt off, how do they feel like they have a chance? Well, so along those lines then, so that's, I think that's uh, a really interesting approach. Can you break down how exactly you do that? And what I mean by that is like, you know, you have a list of 700 teams that have registered, right? And certain ones are ranked and certain ones aren't. And you have teams from all across, you know, the 48 continental United States. I'm sure it keeps, you know, people amped to awake at night, the notion of Alaska or Hawaii ever wanting to competing, but compete. But um, how do you actually go through the process of allocating teams? Is Is there a formula or anything like that? And, and, you know, what Drew and I were saying is, you know, if you want, if there's an example, he and I are both in the Owings Mills regional, the, you know, I guess sort of the Baltimore-ish regional. So maybe you can use that one as an example or another regional that you think is a good example of how exactly the process of placing teams into a regional works. Well, I, I will tell you, it, it starts with the, the BBR or the PPP or the TPR or whatever the heck it's called now. I don't know. <laughs> you know, the, it starts with the power rankings uh, and, and it starts with the national championship brackets. Um, and it, it starts basically from the day that I find out where all the regional tournaments and national tournaments are. Um, I have no say in that. You know, I, I give my input. Um, uh, to the most part, our, our host selection committee doesn't have much say in it either. You know, it's it's who applies, and and when we don't have someone who applies, you know, who who can we beg to get to host a tournament for us? And and so what I do is, I understand that, you know, the the students who are competing now, they know last year, they know the year before, they may or may not know three years ago, they may or may not know history, and so. I know that what they're looking for right from the very start is where is UVA? Where is NYU? Where is Rhodes College? Where is Georgia Tech? And so I literally start at the very, very top uh, by going to the NCAA, uh, NCAA by going to the NCT divisions. And I take those top tens and those honorable mentions. And then I look at them. I literally pour across 
every single team they faced. How did they get to their record? Um, it's, it's not so uh, hard with the team that went 12 and 0. Uh, it, it, but it gets harder when you're looking at the team that went six and six and got the honorable mention. How did, how did they get to that six and six? Were they in the in bracket all the way through? You know, were they right up there? Were they, were they six and three until they faced UVA in that final fourth round and got and finished six and six? Or were they three and six until they drew a team that didn't do so well and was at the bottom bracket and they were just competing because, you know, hopefully both teams were sober, you know, that type of thing. (laughs) You know, you know, I'm a realist. I understand how these tournaments work and I want to see how they got there. And, and then what I do is I start, I make a list of, of who are the strongest teams and I, and I start laying them out. You got to start somewhere, right? It, and it's me, you know, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart. I'm the one who lays everything out. It's it's all me. And the reason for that is if you have too many hands in the kitchen, you don't know what the product's going to be. So so I lay everything out. And then my committee's job is to correct me and to tell me how wrong I am and to tell me what a bad move this is and to tell me how bad this looks and to tell me that this looks weak. And they're free to use whatever metric they want. You know, if if they want to talk to 100 people and interview them and survey them, if they want to write coaches, if they have their own mathematical formula, whatever they want to use to help come up with different metrics that we can use. But it really is that simple where I start and I say, okay, Yale A. Well, they usually want to be in New Haven, so let me put them there. For some odd reason, Yale wants to be where they are. At school is at the tournament they host, so I put them there. And then I go through and I see the next team on the list is, uh, you know, Yale had a BBR of this year of like 56. So I look at them and I say, okay, well, who's next on the list? Well, that's probably UVA at 55.6 or Miami at 56.6. Okay, so where do I want to put them? Because I don't, I don't want UVA. And Yale and uh, and Miami feeding into the same regionals. I don't want them in the same orcs even often. You know, I want to spread that out as much as humanly possible. You know, and then I say, okay, who's next? Roads, okay. And 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 it starts off easy enough, and I do it with the top ten, and or at least what I call the the worthy top ten. You know, the ones who who got to the top ten because they belonged in the top ten because of how they got there to that record. And, and, and then, you know, things start piling up, like all of a sudden next is NYU and you're like, okay, well, NYU is, is, is 45 minutes away from Yale or an hour and a half away from Yale. So, you know, do I want to put them in New Haven? No, I don't. But do I also want them to feed them into the same orcs? Oftentimes the answer is no. You know, and, and so I'm like, okay, so where's the next orcs? And I'll come to, and I'll look down and I'll be like, okay, well, I don't have anyone feeding into the central Islip orcs yet. So let me put them there. And then you just start going down the line. And then what happens is you get to Columbia and you get to Cornell and you get to Tufts and you get to Harvard and you're like, oh God, what am I going to do? <laughs> and so teams start shifting and they start moving around and, and that's, and it, you know, like I, I like to say, it's, it's a not, it's not a transparent process, but if you lay them all out in a spreadsheet and you make these little categories that say 2008 top 10 teams, and then teams with a BBR over 30, and then teams with a BBR between 25 and 30, and teams with a TPR from 20 to 25, and you categorize them into small breakdowns, at least at least in regards to that 20 to 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 30 plus categories 
it actually is very transparent. You you can you know you might not agree with it, but you can see it all kind of unfold. Um, it, you know where it really gets sticky is where you get like like State College might be a great example of this year. Is it's got Cornell A, it's got Cornell B, it's got Columbia A. Uh, you know, and Columbia A is coming off a down year at least by Columbia A standards anyway, you know, and, you know, they, they lost their longtime head coach uh, who was an amazing head coach. And my, you know, my hat goes off to her. God bless her. She did an amazing job for so many years and they brought in a new coach uh, and they still have Buchanan Vines who's there. And he's also an awesome coach, but you know, their numbers tell the story of what they were last year. And we don't know what they're going to be this year. So all of a sudden you have Columbia and Cornell in the same region, you know, and I'll, I'll look at it. I'll say, okay, well, Tufts was a top 10 team last year go, looking over at New Rochelle. So I, you know, who should, you know, but they were a top 10 team this year, but they actually had a couple of rough years before that. And they're, even though they were top 10 this year, their PPR is 32.5. So that's one of the weaker uh, PPRs uh, that, that are out there for the top 10 teams. So I kind of matched them with one of the stronger uh, PPRs of teams that, that were not in the top 10. And that's how kind of how Harvard got their way, you know, uh, uh, using Drew's team as an example, you know, Hubbardford was 23.166 is, I believe is their TPR. If I, if my numbers are, are being honest and that's, so if you look at Owens Mills, sounds right to me. <laughs> so if you look at Owens Mills, if you look at, if you look at Baltimore, you know, Hubbardford's the top 10 team in that region, but you know, what is Hubbardford? You know, are, are was that a one year fluke? You know, where did they come from? You know, I, I actually asked Drew about that, you know, Drew volunteered it before I even called him <laughs> uh, Lafayette's in that same region, because you know what? Lafayette's in the same exact boat. I'm like, what, what is Lafayette? Lafayette is a storied program. They used to host our regional. They used to host a national. They used to be a top 10 team for a couple of years in a row. And then they dropped off. And then last year, you know, uh, you guys <laughs> didn't pay them the most respect. And they came and shoved it in everyone's faces. And good for them. But what does that mean for them this year? You know, Lafayette's another one of those teams that got a phone call from me. I'm like, hey, you know, I'm not, I don't want to uh, embarrass you. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to put you on the spot. But, you know, where do you see yourselves this year? You know, it was, was last year, you know, did you, was last year a very senior team or, were your stars, are they all back, you know, or are the, or do you have another group of future stars coming up? You know, honestly, give me your assessment. And what we ended up deciding was, you know, well, we'll maybe we'll make Owens, Owings Mills, the unproven te- team stomping ground, uh, <laughs> which is what happened because Rutgers, they were amazing like four or five years ago. And then they, and they kept it up for a couple of years and then they dropped off and then they were amazing again. And now they're amazing again uh, and they're doing it again. And so, you know, you look at Owings Mills and you see Hubbardford, Rutgers, Lafayette on top. I see it as the great enigma. You know, you got Baltimore <laughs> County, you know, that's, you know, Ben, that's, that's your program, right? Uh, you know, that's, that is another enigma. You know, what are they? Are they, are they a flash in the pan? Are they here to stay? Are they here to stay for another year or two? I don't know. Uh, so let's all put them in one region and find out, <laughs> you know, uh, that, that I, you know, so there, there's more power in that region uh, in part because there's 32 teams, uh, 30 teams. And, and, you know, 
we do look at that too, you know, because when you look at a power structure, you have to look at, you know, if you don't have enough non-power teams in a region, that's going to skew the results. If you have too many non-power teams, that's going to skew the results. Um, this is where I, I mentioned to Ben off air that, that I'm not the biggest fan of our regionals pairing system because uh, I don't believe that having the top teams facing each other after round one and after round two and after round three, uh, I don't believe that that really uh, shows us who are the top seven teams or who are the eight teams in that region. Um, but, you know, I'm not the power guru. I'm not the, I'm not the, the matchup guru, but, you know, I do acknowledge that there is a certain disconnect there. So something I was curious that you kind of mentioned, and I, I know from having spoken to you that you do uh, take this into somewhat of an account, but, you know, how much do you really trust hearsay from whether it's coaches, whether it's, you know, just captains of teams about where they think their program is, where they think other programs are. I mean, the the thing about just looking at numbers, which you correctly pointed out, is that you have crazy years. Sometimes there's a really strong senior class. Sometimes a team gets some random dumb luck, great judges for them, and they just do really well. I mean, the reality is that at nationals, one judge actually has a really lot, a, a lot of power over what your power ranking is the next year frankly, a single ballot that you take may have a large impact on what your TPR is. And one judge that randomly loves a team can make a big impact on that. So, I mean, you kind of touched on a little bit, but I'm just curious about when it comes down to numbers versus what coaches, captains, and people are telling you, what, what do you trust at the end of the day? Or is it something in some, is it some combination of both? Well, at the end of the day, I, I trust very little other than the numbers. Uh, and I'll tell you why. You know, like when when NYU has the downtown, I know that these teams, you know, they're not going there because they really want to learn, pick up on what other teams are doing. They're going there to win. You know, they're, they are absorbing that expense and that cost and making that trip to New York because they want to win or they want to be as good as they can possibly be. You know, I know when teams go to Gampty, you know, they they want to know, you know, they want to know how they compete against the best. But when I look at the average invitational tournament, you know, I don't know anything. You know, I don't know if, if it says that uh, that that uh, that, you know, just mixing up what schools I reference, if it says Indiana University A, I don't know if that's Indiana University A. I just know that that's what they're calling Indiana University A. You know, that's that's the better team that Indiana sent. I don't know if that's Indiana's A team. I don't know if that's half of Indiana's A team. I don't know if Indiana has an A team yet. You know, I don't know if they've stacked. I don't know if they're if they're just doing a training exercise. If they're or like this one was a kind of anomaly in their schedule and they and the team's kind of piecemeal between A, B, and C members. I don't know. Um, and and there's no way to know. And even if I knew what Indiana did, 
I don't know what their opponents did. I don't know what Stanford did. I don't know what Northwestern did. I don't know what Arizona did. I don't know if you're facing Wheaton College A or Wheaton College C and Wheaton College A and B were off partying that weekend back on campus and it was fraternity rush and everybody and nobody was around, you know, and this is and the team that they're calling Wheaton A is is the Wheaton A because that's the team they sent. You know, and they didn't they, nobody says, Okay, well Wheaton's sending one team, so we're gonna call them Wheaton C. It's not going to happen. You know, so I, I don't know what I'm looking at in those tournaments. And so I'll reach out to people and I'll be like, so what are you seeing this year? But they don't know what they're seeing either. It's not like they're sitting there having a conversation with Ohio State going and they're saying, oh, yeah, this is our A team. And at that same time, you know, you know, by the time November rolls around, these these things are drafted. You know, they were not finalized by any stretch of the imagination. We're we're editing things up until the final couple of days. But, you know, who knows what a team in October is going to look like in January. I don't know how, if half that team's going to quit. I don't know if that team's going to improve. You know, maybe they, maybe they peak early. Maybe they haven't peaked at all. Maybe they, maybe nobody on Ohio State has, or, you know, I'm, I'm just picking random schools here, you know, just to mix up what, what I'm referencing. Maybe no one in Chicago has actually read the case yet. They, they're just that good. They know what they're doing, that they can get by on the flat of the seat of the pants and know the secret to mock trial is witnesses and they have great witnesses and the other team isn't prepared yet. You know, for all I know, one of their opponents is on paper, you know, it, it especially in those early season invitationals when we're doing the drafting when you know September October you know when they've had the case for maybe a month you know how how can you rely on any of that you know you just don't know you don't you don't know anything at all and and like you said I could call the coaches but even then there I can't rely on their information cuz I don't know about who they faced I don't know you know unless I call up every single team and ask them which nobody has the time to do uh you know it it's it you, you just don't know so like I'll, I'll look at the early season invitationals that I know are good tournaments you know back when Irvine was was you know back when Justin Bernstein had the uh the anteater tournament and the uh or whatever it was where they had two teams facing each other from the same school, that tournament I could look at and be like, okay, I know that these kids went there to win it. You know, now not so much, you know, now I look at Cubate, but Cubate's in early mid October. What does that mean? You know, what, what, the, what does any of that mean? Um, and so I don't, you know, the answer is I don't, I, I have to go by feel. I have to go by what, what they report to me. But generally speaking, the, the greatest parameter that I use is last year's results. And to do that, I kind of have to edit the BBR or the TPR. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I refer to them interchangeably, you know, because uh, it, uh, they've just changed names so many times over the years that I just don't even know what to call it anymore. The PowerPoint rankings. Um, you know, I look at that and I'll subtract out two years ago. Because, you know, frankly, I'm a big college basketball fan and how University of Maryland did the year after the national championship uh, would, would, would have really, really, really skewed everything. You know, what, I, what, what these students know, what the competitors know is last year's results. And so, you know, many of these teams, God bless them, they, they do it year in, year out. The Browns of the world, the NYUs of the world, the Cornells of the world. You know, Americans has been very consistent over the years. Richmond has been great over the years with Ted at the helm. You know, Penn State, you know, you know what these teams are. They might get better. They might get worse. 
Furman, you you know whether they have a bad year or a great year, they're 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 right there in the national championship discussion. So you know it's a combination of what happened last year versus my own institutional knowledge versus what I think that the students perceive because that's important too. You know when students see this team, you know like I know that that students fear UCLA C as much as they fear A and B. And I know that students fear uh, Rhodes C and D as much as they fear A and B. And they deserve that because they win and they get these bids year in, year out. Uh, and, and so you have to keep all that in mind. It's, it's, it's an amazing juggling act. And there's far more going on than people can possibly really get. You know, and I and more than I want them to get because if, if they're sitting there analyzing my my regional assignments, then you know, are they sitting there learning mock trial? You know, are they neglecting every one of their other classes? You know, don't they have to worry about getting grades at some point or another? You know, what I what I try to do is make this away so they don't look at it and they say, okay, why am I being screwed? And maybe maybe they don't feel screwed, but maybe they do. I think all that's really interesting. And what I'm curious about with with how it plays into it is uh, the question of geography, because we obviously, you know, the U.S. is a huge country and we have, you know, regional hosts all over the country and you have teams that have to travel long distances. And that, you know, I'm sure that sometimes limits your ability to place certain people. I know in the Northeast, uh, you know, in our Drew and I's area, I think it's a little bit less of a concern. But when you get out to, you know, the Midwest and especially out to the West and the Northwest, like you got some of those teams that, have, you know, you don't have as many regional sites and they got to go pretty far. So how and I know there's a rule specifically on on distance, but also how do you deal with the constraints that maybe are placed on you by how far teams are able to go, what they can do? Do you reach out to specific programs who maybe have the means to travel further? You know, what's that calculus like? You know, I, I go by what I call a morality compass, and that is, you know, I, I believe the the rule says five hours. You know, generally speaking, you know, just from years of coaching, you know, I know that six hours is basically the the the, the max of of realisticness. You know, maybe you can ask them to go six and a half hours. You know, generally speaking, my rule of thumb is if I want a team to go more than six hours, I'll call them. Or, or, or send them an email or I'll reach out to them. And generally speaking, the teams that I'm sending six hours, they are power teams and they're, and they're not mid-level power teams. They are top power teams. Like for example, uh, Alabama, you know, a, a great school, by the way, of a great example of a team that came out of nowhere. Uh, they, they, they were, you know, not even on the radar really last year. And then they had, came out and their A and B were incredible. And, uh, and, and not only that, but I hear they're tearing things up this year too. Uh, and I hear they're forced to be reckoned with They're in Houston. That's uh that's nine and a half hours away from Alabama's campus, you know, Northwestern, uh, you know, they, 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 you know, we kind of gave them a great assignment from a power perspective, uh, because we, we, they were on the wait list, uh, and we, and we needed some power out in Lawrence, but and they and to their credit god bless them they they agree to this but it's that's a nine hour drive for them you know they're going to be out in lawrence kansas and and they and they're doing amp a great service because lawrence doesn't have power 
and Topeka doesn't really have that much power and Minneapolis doesn't have that much power and that's their power teams there are Chicago and Washington University of St. Louis and Iowa and Cornell College you know and and they're all making these long treks out there uh, because if we put them all in Wheaton Nobody in Wheaton would have a chance. Um, you know, it, it would be unfair. The teams at Wheaton would show up and be like, okay, well, Chicago A and B are getting two bids. Northwestern A and B are getting two bids. Washington St. Louis is getting two bids. Okay, who else is getting bids? And they, and like I said, going back to the beginning of the discussion, they don't see themselves getting that bid, and they don't believe they have a chance. And and that's how you discourage people. Um, now, you you mentioned like the Northeast. It's easy. But maybe not, because like, look at this year, you know, this year, uh, Delaware was is not being a national host, nor would we really reasonably ask them to be a national host, because Philadelphia is basically a half hour away from them, give or take, if even, uh, you know, and that's where our national championship is. And, and Philadelphia, our tournaments there haven't had history of the most successful judge recruitment. And here we are asking them to get you know, 60, 70, 80 scoring judges, attorneys per round for the national championship. So realistically speaking, they weren't going to be a national championship. But realistically speaking, we lost Lancaster because Lancaster is going to be, is basically the same host in many respects. It's Grant Keener, who's going to, I'm sure, do an amazing job. Grant always comes through in the clutch whenever we need him. He's, he's been a great guy. Um, uh, but so what ended up happening is we went to, all of our existing regionals, you know, we went to Stevenson and we went to, uh, I think Ben was probably you. <laughs> we went to Princeton. We went to, uh, <laughs> we even went to Buffalo, which really would have been a very bad location for a national. I'll tell you why in a second. But, uh, and we asked them, we could Princeton, American, DC, can you guys host a national for us? And for whatever respective reasons they had, they all said no. The one who said yes was Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts, uh, Boston College, and uh, and we didn't go to them last because because we didn't have any because we didn't have faith in them. To the contrary, Boston College, I remember being repping their first regional. Uh, those students, it's student run program, and they, they they are incredible. They do it year in year out, and they do a great job for us, and we're thankful to have them, and we're and we're really happy that they're in Orcs, but nobody else in Boston wanted to host a regional. And so now what happens is we have enough teams in that Boston I-90 corridor to fill up basically three regionals. And uh, and they don't have one. We can't send them to Buffalo. Buffalo's eight, nine hours away from them. Uh, one straight shoot down I-90. They would never even have to get off the highway. It would just literally be uh, an eight-hour drive. Uh, and, and Buffalo is not exactly the warmest weather climate. Uh, so they're not going to Buffalo. State College. Well, we're not we're not sending them to State College either. That's that's going to Buffalo and then heading south another two hours, you know. So where are they going? Well, they're going to New Haven, and obviously New Haven can't handle all those teams. So what happens then? Well, then they go to then then some more teams from there are going to have to go down further. They're going to have to go down to New Rochelle, and then well then there's more teams still. You know, there's enough to fill up another regional. So where are they going to go? Well, the only other team site within reasonable distance is Princeton. After that, you're, the next site is Stevenson, which is like, what, another hour and a half or so past Princeton. And when you're coming from Boston, well, New Rochelle is four hours and Princeton's five hours. And Stevenson, you're probably bordering seven hours of driving. Um, and I'm not going to do that, I'm just, you know, especially because we have to be cognizant. It's February. 
you know, in February, anything can happen, you know, and, and weather-wise, and it's dangerous. And, you know, unfortunately, that we've encountered circumstances of that before. So then I have another hard and fast rule that says if you are a no-power team, and if you don't carry any power, and you're within 40 minutes or so, 45 minutes of a site, my presumption is you're commuting each day. You're commuting back and forth to the tournament because you're close enough and most of these teams don't really have the financial support of their budget. So, you know, so then you look at New Haven, right? And you scan down. Well, you know, you look at these universities, Quinnipiac, you know, it's right next to New Haven, basically. You know, uh, Roger Williams is pretty close to New Haven. I don't know if it's, you know, commuting to Connecticut College, you know, who I don't think has ever gone to nationals, you know, U.S. Coast Guard Academy, it's 40 minutes away or so. You know, where are these teams going to go? Am I going to really send these teams away so that I can make room for other teams that have to travel? And the answer is no, I'm not. You know, they don't have the budget. We'll never see them again. Uh, look at New Rochelle, Concordia, Malloy, you know, uh, Vassar College. You know, these are schools that are basically right there. Uh, you know, where am I going to send them? Am I really going to send them to Princeton when there's a team, when there's a site 20, 25 minutes away from them? that they can go to, you know, uh, again, we're talking about it in like the no power region, you know, uh, you know, and so that forces more teams down. And then, so then you start, and then that you start looking at it and you start looking at the no power teams like, okay, well, I can't send this no power team further. So I have to start looking at the power teams and I'm going to have to start sending a couple power teams further away. And, and I think it actually kind of, you know, even now, you know, b before we even got on this call, you asked about Princeton. Uh, you know, Princeton became a little weaker by virtue of the fact that I had to keep shifting teams further down south. And uh, and I had to make room for the teams that were being asked to travel excessively at that point. Because, like I said, we want to keep them. We want them to be happy. We don't want to punish them. Uh, you know, do we need more hosts? Does it, you know, some will tell you flat out, like, yes, there, there's no better way to guarantee that the team signs up the host than to make them travel seven hours. I say there's no better way to chase a team away. So, uh, <laughs> so, you know, so yes, in the Northeast, there's much more flexibility, but there, but even that flexibility has limitations because those Boston schools have to go somewhere. Then you start looking at that New York corridor, like in order to shift out some power, Every year I send a power team out to Buffalo and that Buffalo team is, is, not, is that whatever power team that is, they're not organic to Buffalo. You know, I try to vary it up. One year it's NYU, one year it's Columbia, one year it's Yale. In the past I've sent Penn State, in the past I've sent Michigan, you know, who just had to basically cross over the Canadian border for a little bit, get their passports and drive around the Great Lakes and go to Buffalo, you know. Uh, and by the way, I mentioned Buffalo before. I should just come back to it. Uh, we did ask them to be a national. They didn't. Uh, they declined. Uh, but I didn't want them to be a national because, you know, if you look at the Buffalo Regional, that is another tournament that's chock full of teams that uh, that don't carry much power that are right there. You know, where am I going to send them? State College is full year in, year out, you know, at their max. And last year they had a little bit of a judge recruitment problem, but I don't blame them. I blame that on the fact that that got off a football team from their state made it to the Super Bowl that happened to be on the same day of the final round of the tournament. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. Sorry, <laughs> Eagles fans. Uh, but, you know, they, they year in, year out, they take 24, they take 26. All those teams, they're right there. Gettysburg, Bucknell, you know, 
if, if, if Edinburgh, uh, you know, Penn State, you know, obviously Susquehanna, Juniata Community College, I look at their list and I'm like, geez, you know, I'm not going to make those guys travel further to accommodate the Buffalo teams, you know, and, and, and so now you're seeing this strange little equilibrium this year where, where because the New Haven and because Princeton and because New Rochelle are all basically Boston area teams, they're all going to feed into the Boston orcs, orcs, even though they're all about an hour away from central Islip. Yeah. So the geography of those three sites does not match the geography of their, their makeup. And so it, it caused this weird shift. So if like, okay, well, if all the Boston schools have to go up to Boston for their orcs, who am I sending Central Islip? So that's now you see Baltimore and State College. And State College, who I've traditionally tried to send west uh, out to Hamilton when all possible, get some of that power out of the east. And suddenly they're now a New York City feeder site, even though New Rochelle is approximately 30 minutes away from Central Islip. So, uh, you know, so – Geography is king, uh, you know, and, and, you know, granted, I have more flexibility in the Northeast uh, than I do in, say, St. Louis or, uh, and St. Louis is probably a bad example because St. Louis is so close to Lawrence and it's so close to Kansas, uh, Topeka, but it doesn't matter because everyone is so spar- far spread out there. Um, you know, St. Louis and Minnesota basically had to become the Iowa sites this year because Cedar Rapids became an Orcs. And why did Cedar Rapids become an Orcs? Because that whole area of the country was so underserved in nationals. You know, every one of those teams every year had to travel so far for nationals. And when they got to a nationals, they were facing teams that were from other areas of the country. And, you know, there, who knows what the actual power is in that area of the country because they never got a chance. So, Adam, one thing that we kind of were have been curious about is the fact that there are a lot of different rules that you kind of have to work around when when making a lot of these regional assignments being the you know certain sizes of regionals whether it's how big the the host allows it to be but also how many bids get allocated to that region so you have the mini regionals um out in colorado springs and they have a certain number of bids and you have some of these larger regionals that in the past have gotten uh, even eight bids and i'm just wondering you know how to how does that play a role into the assignments? And can you just explain to people, you know, how exactly that rule works and what the motivation behind it is? Yes, uh, I'm, I'm proud to say that I was a, a, a driving force behind both the concept of the extra bid for the larger tournaments uh, and the creation of what I affectionately call the half regional. It's not a fair name for it. It's you know, it, it's, it is what it is. And I'll, I'll start with the half regional because that's the more recent development. The idea behind the half regional is that there's certain areas of the country where we are still growing, uh, where, but we just don't have, you know, we're not at that place where we have enough teams to, to justify having a, a full regional tournament, but there are just way too many teams that we can ship them off. You know, for years, we would send all the Colorado teams to Topeka, uh, which was about a six, six and a half hour drive. Uh, not not a pleasant drive by any stretch of the imagination, not an easy drive. And uh, and slowly Topeka was growing. You know, Topeka was that site where every year we would have 
maybe we'd have 20 teams assigned there. Maybe three or four would drop every year and, and we'd have like a 16 team tournament. Uh, and so we were able to fill that with the Colorado teams, but Colorado kept growing and Topeka kept growing. And so, and, and not only that, but they, there wasn't much power in either area. So, you know, we want to be in a position where we're accommodating growth and the organization is continuing to grow and get known by more schools. Because frankly, the more schools that we have participating, the more prestigious the whole competition becomes. You know, it's a great honor to say, hey, I competed with 350, 360 other colleges to get my ranking. You know, I competed with 700 other schools to get this ranking. Um, we want to encourage growth. We want to encourage growth wherever we can, but we're not going to grow if, if teams have to travel seven hours to get to their tournament. So, uh, so we started with Colorado, which was actually kind of fortuitous because that year we had a national championship in California and nobody in California stepped up to replace UCLA. Uh, so what ended up happening was I would personally call up USC and UCLA and Arizona and Arizona State and Fresno and beg them to fly two teams off to Colorado in the dead of winter uh, and then drive basically through the Rocky Mountains to get to the Colorado Springs in the middle <laughs> of February uh, just so we would have enough spots to accommodate all the other teams in California. Because if they didn't agree, we wouldn't have been able to. We would have had a real emergency on our hands and we wouldn't have had a solution. Um, and so that year... Uh, I would probably venture to say that Colorado Springs was probably the hardest tournament we had to offer between UCLA and USC and all those schools. But the next year we had UCLA back and we didn't need them. But we had 15, 16 teams in Colorado, um, none of whom carried power, but way too many to send to Topeka. And there was no other site within seven, eight hours that we could send. You know, uh, we had Kansas City. Kansas City was even further away and Kansas City was pretty full especially if we didn't have like St. Louis that year. So we presented this idea of half regionals and said, okay, let's keep them close to home. We will give them a chance to develop. We'll give them a chance to grow and we'll see how it goes. We'll give them less bids for less spots, but they'll have a chance and we'll provide a vital service to, to the AMTA community. And, and it worked, you know, uh, for the, for a couple of years, we split uh, we split Colorado College between multiple nationals. This year, we actually have 20 teams in it. And guess what? That makes it a full regional. So to a certain extent, our goal was accomplished. Now, now the next goal is to get those power teams to really, I mean, to get those teams to really uh, develop and become better programs to the point where we don't need to basically, uh, for lack of a better term, artificially add power to the tournament. Um, the idea behind Houston was that, hey, we had 28 teams in Dallas the past couple of years. You know, our friends at the University of Texas, Dallas, God bless them. I mean, I, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart because every year they're like, we want 22 teams. And every year, most coasts we call up, we're like, could you take two more teams? Could you take three more teams? Then we called up, we're like, could you take eight more teams than what you wanted to, you know, and, and they would do it every single time and, and they did it happily. Uh, and, you know, not maybe, maybe not happily behind closed doors, but to us, they, they did it. And they, and, but we could have easily put 36, 38 teams there. Jackson, you know, can only hold about 24 teams. And there's about 50 teams in that Jackson Dallas area 
that really, really had no place to go. So the idea was we would ask, you know, we'd get like a place like Houston in there or a place like Arkansas or Alabama, somewhere in that quarter where we can send some of those teams. And, and University of St. Thomas stepped up uh, to our friend, Mr. Hubble, I'm forever grateful. Uh, and, but Houston is quite literally Mexico for all practical purposes. There's only so many teams that can travel to Houston. Like if you're coming from Louisiana, it's pretty easy to get to Houston a, a little bit more obnoxious compared to Jackson, but it's easy to get to, you know, if you're coming from North, like roads would be, it's just impossible. It, it's an eight hour, nine hour trek. So there's no power down there. So the idea was we'd keep Dallas at 28 teams and we'd make Houston like 18 teams. And that would be a half regional this year. But guess what? We had growth. And now Dallas is sitting at 26. Houston is sitting at 24. And Jackson right down the road is sitting at 22, 23, 24, somewhere right around there. Uh, no, they're at 24 too. They're at cap. So between those three sites. So we added a site that intended to be a half regional and we were ended up filling it. So literally 74 teams before the, in those three regionals, but we're lacking power. So hopefully this, we're giving them a chance to develop and we're giving them a chance to grow. And who knows, rice a came on board, super strong Dillard, you know, they're on the upper rise. You know, these are schools that we're watching and, you know, university of Houston, St. Thomas, you know, University of Texas used to be amazing. They're not, they're not right now from a power perspective, they're not as great right now, but hopefully they're back. And then hopefully we won't have to send Alabama down there and they will be a full strength team. Okay. So the second part of the question was eight bids, seven bids, six bids. So this was something we were pushing for, for a long time. You know, AMTA has always done this kind of one size fits all, not always, but always in the modern era has kind of done this always one size fits all every tournament is seven bids but but you know so i mentioned before that if i see a tournament's 30 teams i'm probably putting an extra power team there if i see a tournament is 22 teams i'm probably taking one power team out the the result is that these tournaments while we treated them as one size fits all the reality is they weren't Um, the reality is that they were uh, varying sizes, varying power structures. Some tournaments, you guys, you know, whoever was behind the, that mock trial analyzer on perjuries last year, they got, they hit it right on the money. Some teams are, some sites are top heavy. Some are bottom heavy. Some are right, are chock full of those middle of the road teams that beat each other up year in, year out. And maybe they didn't make the nationals last year, but that's because there were so many of those middle teams right in right there that they just beat each other up a good example of that was richmond last year where i believe we had upenn and american and delaware and they just beat each other up into submission to the point where upenn who could have probably even made it to the national championship they got a favorable draw didn't even get out of regionals um and so you know that's a good example so we 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 sat down and brainstormed and and a different committee at the time you know i still remember being told the news in ada ohio at a board meeting that they had finally decided that they would add a bid if we were above a certain number of teams at a tournament and that number has kind of fluctuated over the years uh and it's going to fluctuate again this year because we did add that 28th regional uh, we are, you know, we, we are adding that ninth orcs, but I expect that, you know, if a te- tournament has 28 teams, uh, 
I expect that they'll probably get an extra bid to their tournament. And, and that's the way it should be, frankly, if you ask me anytime. Uh, I still believe in it wholeheartedly. I believe it's a way to thank the hosts who are taking on a bigger burden. I believe it's a way of, of saying thank you to them and encouraging them to continue to host to say, hey, we recognize that you're you're going above and beyond for us and we're sending you another bid. And at the same time, those other tournaments, you know, I realize that it's unfair that, you know, one tournament has a 33% chance of getting a bid to nationals while another one has a 50% chance of getting to nationals or a 20% chance of getting to nationals. So it's a it's about fairness and uh and one thing that i've been really trying to push after over the years and a lot of people have and there's a lot of people behind it and i don't take credit for it you know it's been a great leadership we have a lot of young blood on the board a lot of people who really care about everyone's experience and what they're really seeing is that this one size fit all model that we've had over the years doesn't really work anymore we're we're not when you have 700 teams not when you're hosting almost 40 tournaments across the country. So your questions were related, and they should be, because they're both amped to saying, okay, we're going away from the status quo. We're going beyond these numerics of all-size, one-size-fits-all type tournaments, and we're going to really look at things and evaluate them and try to, and try to meet the needs of our, our, of our membership. You know, the, the common theme here of all of this is, we care very deeply about this, you know, it's start, not to bring it full circle to the very beginning, but, you know, we do this as a labor of love. None of us are being paid, you know, God knows my job is a thankless one. My committee's job is a thankless one. Nobody ever writes us and says, you guys are awesome. Thank you so much. You know, we're not out on the circuit. We're not the name board members that everybody knows and loves. You know, we're just people who do this for our own gratification because we know we're making a difference in someone's life and and hopefully they'll repay that and you know our, our big hope is that you know they turn around and they become attorneys or they give back to the community that they are our future hosts that they are our future judges that they are the future donors to programs of or AMTA itself you know that they look back at this 20 years down the five years down the road 10 years down the road when they're in their 60s and 70s and they say that was a really amazing time of my life. That was a really meaningful experience. You know, when that happens, that, that's our job well done. And, uh, you know, so I look at perjuries and I look at like the threads on there. They're, they're like, these guys are unfair. You know, what's going on with this problem? What's going on with that problem? But, you know, they're students. They care. They're passionate. I'm happy for it. And I don't think they realize exactly how much blood, sweat, and tears goes in by volunteers to make make their experience as best as humanly possible. And we try very hard to do it. You know, I, I like, I, I personally put in about a hundred hours of, of my time, you know, that's the equivalent of two and a half work weeks to, to make national, to make the nationals as fair and even as, as geography and, and, and numerics permit. Uh, and it's because we love it and uh, we love it as much as you guys do, especially all these who have enough time and nerdiness to listen to this podcast and to listen to my rambles for the past hour. Uh, you know, it's it's the common denominator between your question and why, why we're here and why we do this. Well, Adam, I can't thank you enough for coming on and chatting with us. I know Ben and I both really appreciate it. And to the hundreds and thousands of students, probably tens of thousands of students who do this activity. Uh, I know they don't thank you enough, but thank you from at least two of us. 